This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. And now we have a treat for sports fans everywhere. It's really important that professional athletes learn what uh, to say and how to deliver their message. You've got a great first half. Make sure you keep the ball doing the work. We're still looking to get it in the wide areas. First of all, it's the correct stadium design, but also the correct pitch construction. And that clash, that rivalry comes together with that traditional white block against that more modern, contemporary neon color. All these events live on the programme. We'll continue to do our best to cover sport in the way that you like, backed up by our highly professional team. Grandstand starts now on BFM 89.9. Yes, hello and thanks for joining us. It is indeed another episode of Grandstand. I'm Ross Yusof, and every week I bring you a different perspective on sport. We look at it differently, kind of like this. He says, leaning his head to the right. Yeah, radio joke doesn't work. Um, in the studio with me this week, we've got uh, sports author Bob Holmes. Bob, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, as usual. Bob is the author of Living the Dream or Enduring the Nightmare. It's, it's a story about how British football basically got, got taken over by all these very rich foreign owners. Um, more about the book and all that in a few moments. But a lot of you who listen to our, our Friday show, you, 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 you'll recognize Bob. Uh, he's on Thank Friday it's Football with me. And Bob's now been in, in Malaysia for 23 years, I understand. Um... How did it all start out, Bob? Uh, marriage, actually. <laughs> That's the that that delay, often isn't it? does the trick. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like jail. You could have said that or marriage. <laughs> yeah, both same thing. Um, all right. So, how did it? How did Bob the journalist come about? Well, uh, it's a long story. Um, when uh, I left school, I had a clue what I wanted to do other than see the world, and I set off with about. 20 pounds in my pocket, which is about not a lot over 100 ringgit, to do that. And it obviously involved working and uh, here and there, all sorts hang, of hang dirty on. jobs. What, what did your family say? Well, they weren't too keen on it. Um, no, I, 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 but I used to write home regularly. <laughs> There was yeah, a, no no right, uh, no SMSs or anything. No, no back Facebook, then. no WhatsApp. No, nothing like that. But uh, I, I was in touch. Um, anyhow, uh, the journalist thing, I didn't really think too much about journalism uh, until I sort of, I used to write long letters, not only to my folks, but to mates and other people I knew. And quite a few of them started to say, well, you should be a writer. These, these letters are, you know, they're not bad. Uh, have you ever thought of journalism? So this got me thinking because there were so many of people saying that sort of thing. And then when I ended up in Africa, halfway through Africa, as you do, mm -hmm. um, run, running out of money, um, Kenya, actually. Okay. I'd, I'd been through um, Egypt, Sudan. I always wanted to do the uh, Cairo so to the you, Cape. You, you literally hitchhiked from the UK, ended up Africa. Yeah, bits and pieces. I mean, the odd bus here and there, the odd cheap flight. Stowaway um, on a boat here. Yeah, all that, all that sort of thing. <laughs> and... Uh, I got uh, worked on famine relief in Ethiopia, one of the many famines they had there. Survived the Arab-Israeli war one year. My goodness. 1974. Um, all, all of that. And then ended up in uh, Kenya. As I, as I say, I was running out of money. But 
the, the papers there were actually carrying uh, football stories, and it was the FA Cup final. I was just about in touch with it with the little shortwave radio I had with the, the BBC World Service. So I was aware the FA Cup final was coming up, and it was a much bigger event in those days than it is now. And it was Liverpool against Newcastle. And uh, I didn't feel as if the local papers were doing it justice uh, in an arrogant uh, expat sort of a way. I mean, what right do I have to say that? Well, were these but, what? But who were they written by? Like professionals? Uh, or? Uh, no, there was the usual thing. I mean, there was some wire stories right, and yeah, uh, locals yeah, yeah. and all that. Anyway, I got very bold one day and I, I called up and uh, spoke to the editor. And he, sports editor, and he invited me for a drink in the famous Stanley Hotel, where the, well, named after Stanley, who met Livingston, of course, and um, we had a drink, and he said, well, if you can do a decent preview for me, I'll put it on the back page tomorrow, so like that. Mm-hmm. So I uh, stayed in the Stanley Hotel and got out my, the only piece of paper I had was some airmail paper, which I was using to write letters on. I borrowed a pen from a waiter and I uh, proceeded to write. And I always remember there was one guy, White Hunter by the look of him, he said to me, uh, oh, long letter home. And uh, I just said, well, actually, it could be tomorrow's back page. And then I went into the office and I typed it out on an old-fashioned old typewriter. So this is info you, you've, you've gathered from listening on your shortwave radio? And well, that was the up-to-date stuff. But I, I didn't know about the injuries and all that. Okay. But just the stories about Bill Shankly, basically. Mm. It was mainly about him. And uh, I wrote it. And they thought it was great. And put it on the back page. And he invited me back in. And I did two or three. And, uh, and that, that started me off, basically. But he said I, he couldn't give me a job because of um, employment regulations and stuff like that. So I carried on. I carried on traffic. But they, that was the first time I'd ever written a piece. So after after Africa, where did you end up then? Um, I Africa, then I went back. I had already been to uh, North America. Um, I followed England because I had seen England win the World Cup in 1966. So you, you thought 70 in Mexico, yeah, they'd, th- they'd retain it. I thought they had a better team, to be honest. Um, although Brazil were, were better then. Um, uh, so I, uh, I found myself in uh, Canada, Western Canada, doing some dirty job like washing dishes or tending bar. And um, I thought, well, how many, you know, I, tr- I was trying to get the tickets through the FA and that sort of thing, got no joy at all. So I thought, well, there's only one thing for this. I, I can't afford to miss it. I hitchhiked down from Vancouver to Guadalajara, which is in western Mexico. That's a, a bit of a trek. It's about 3,000 miles. <laughs> a little bit of a trek. And so I what, mean, on lorries and stuff like that? No, I mean like, cars. Like cars. Movies. And, uh, in, in those days, hitching was was quite an acceptable thing to do. Did they all go, you're not from around here, are you, boy? <laughs> well, I had I even had a Union Jack on my pack. It was Union Jacks in those days, none of this uh, separatist Yeah, license. yeah, yeah. And uh, they recognized that. And uh, they picked me up. And they're, they're pretty friendly in the west coast of the United States. So you ended up in Guadalajara. Guadalajara. You, the, you watched the World Cup. Bought the tickets. This is only just to get the tickets, mate. Goodness. 
um, the, the t- this was six months before the tournament started. I was beginning to panic. <laughs> and uh, then I, I uh, continued to travel and uh, worked in New York and, and stuff. Uh, my parents came over, met them, and then all that. And then I was ready for the World Cup. And I went down there and watched uh, all the famous games. I was there behind the goal when Gordon Banks made that save. The save. Heard Pelé shout, goal. Actually heard it. I thought it was a goal too. Pelé Pelé has deemed it the the best save ever. Yeah. Uh, For younger listeners, go go and check it out. Gordon Banks and the save from 1970. Yeah, and we're all gutted. We lost 1-0. To Brazil. I mean, this is this shows you how things have fallen. <laughs> and it was only a group game. It didn't really matter because uh, Brazil and England still topped the group. We still went through, and we thought that we would meet them in the final. We thought, oh, we're not getting there. But frankly, I didn't think we would because I could see that Brazil was special. Uh, I mean, Pele was there. He was kicked out of the 1966 tournament. But they, they were fantastic, Brazil. Nobody could touch them. I don't think England would have got near them. All right, so so Mexico, England out of the World Cup. But but you've got World Cup fever. You, you're obviously into football now. I where, was always into football. Yeah, where, where is it taking you next? Uh, well, I think eventually I actually went back to the UK and decided uh, that, yes, I, I would try and write. Um, so... Uh, you know, not having started as a cub reporter, I was I was way behind everyone, and the only thing you could do was just write stories and hope somebody recognised something in them. Mm. It wasn't a conventional way of doing it, but journalism then was about the only the only uh, profession uh, where you could do such a thing. And I mean, I mean, if you're a brain surgeon, you're not going to be able to ring up somebody and say, "Look, I, I can." I can cut into brains pretty tidily, you know, can you give me a chance? Um, I mean, they'd laugh at you. But journalism, uh, they actually took me on. And uh, so I I just gradually built up a sort of portfolio. And um, I I did go to extreme lengths. Um, I remember uh, one of Mike Tyson's early fights... um, in Atlantic City. All right. Uh, because I had a mate in Atlantic City. and He was a beast in those uh, days. Absolutely. And I I was dying to to see him in, in the flesh, as it were. And uh, this mate said, well, you can always stay, uh, you know, with us. So uh, there was a very cheap flight going. And I went. And I, I just managed to get one magazine to take the story. And I didn't know what they were going to do with it, but I thought, well, I can afford the airfare. If they pay me the going rate, I'll just about break even. And I had trouble getting a ticket, and I ended up at the back of the Atlantic City Convention Center. It was Mike Tyson against Larry Holmes. And it was Tyson when he was in his early phase. Yep, he was just blowing a- people absolutely. away. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he was wearing the black trunks yeah black uh, black black boots yeah no socks no trim nothing and i'll never forget when he first appeared under the spotlight there was a wave of fear that went through the audience of about four thousand that's half your battle one as a boxer and we were in the audience and i was at the back (laughs) and you know i my spine was tingling at this and so were the other people next to me 
And it, it was just incredible. The sight. It was like a caged animal suddenly breaking free. He was so menacing. And then, because he knocked out uh, Larry Hounds yep. in the fourth round. Yep. And then there was a press conference afterwards. And I managed to get into that. And I was only standing about 10 feet away from him. And he was smiling. He'd won and everything. And he, he, looked, he looked all right then. You know, he was obviously uh, looked a fairly friendly sort of a fella. Anyway, I did the story. And I, I didn't even speak to him directly. Uh, but anyway, the, the magazine that ran the story, the headline was Bob Holmes Trades Punches with Mike Tyson. Nice. So, I mean, I was okay. I was okay with that. You know? Very nice. Yeah, so far on, on Grandstand, he's the only guest that went around and trade boxes, punches with Mike Tyson. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to find out how Bob decided to write a book about football. Next. More Grandstand coming right up on BFM 89.9. Because freedom matters. BFM 89.9. A view of sports from every angle. This is Grandstand. Hey, thanks for still sticking with us. Ross here. It is Grandstand. And this week we are focusing on sports authors. Bob Holmes is in the house. We, we heard about how, how Bob, early Bob, kind of dropped into journalism, really. And literally just dropped into journalism. So now, Bob... Um, we want to find out how you came about writing this book, Living the Dream and Enduring the Nightmare. How did that come about? I mean, okay, at the time you, you were working here in, in the sun uh, as a journalist. Yeah, um, well, I was uh, following this, obviously, very closely. Um, and I was uh, concerned about the number of foreign owners uh, who were buying up uh, British football clubs. And the amount Wh of which money. was which was the club that first raised your peak? Well, the the, 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 big, the big one was Abramovich, wasn't it, with uh, Chelsea? But that um, but that, that was a good of, one. That one kind that of was went a good the right one. Way. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, these were not all bad by any means. No, I mean, look at Man City, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it got uh, it was getting a bit ridiculous with uh, Hearts. I remember the, the crackpot there, uh, Heart of Midlothian. Um, and uh, Blackburn Rovers, um, yeah, Forest, my own club, you know. Um, and I thought that this was pretty interesting stuff. And with uh, Malaysia being a, a sophisticated, opinionated football audience, yeah. they're not just watching these games. They're well aware what's going on behind the scenes. And it's a lot of it is down to money, sadly. Absolutely. And yeah. really, the stories behind these takeovers fascinated me. I mean, there were wanted men, uh, men that didn't exist, uh, men on the Human Rights Watch, International List, Amnesty International were after them, bankrupts. And, and some good guys. I mean, you know, some genuinely but, but rich all, all guys. surprisingly pissed past the uh, fit and proper test. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I thought this is, you know, quite a subject. And also being here, I thought it was one I could actually do. 
because there was no time frame really. Yeah, so um, you, you, you did this concurrently with working. How long did the whole project take to, to well, finish this whole book? I used my annual leave to go back to do interviews, um, apart from uh, Sven, who I interviewed in Macau. Uh, sorry, Guangzhou. I went to see Manny Pacquiao fight in Macau. Nice. And uh, just across the border was Sven uh, at Guangzhou. So killed two birds with one stone there. Um, and what was he like? He was great. Sven is is one of the world's is, nice is guys. Is he as, as charismatic and as charming as he's, we think he he's is? He's not charismatic. He's. Uh, I he mean, looks like he's oozing women well, dripping I, off his arm and stuff like that. I asked my wife what she thought because <laughs> uh, she was with me because um, we went to China. She was, you know, interpreting uh, to some extent. And um, she actually served us green... No, he had green tea. I had a coffee. It was a, uh, a very sober uh, meeting, but he was good value. And um, she didn't think he, you know, oozed anything in particular. Um, but I thought he was great. He oozed a lot of quotes, what I was out for. Brilliant. What was the funniest thing he said? Oh, well, um, he was telling stories about Taksin, uh, Shinawatra... Uh, his time at Man City because mm. he, he was uh, Sven missed the bonanza of the shake literally by the one owner yeah <laughs> yep. and he, he was a bit uh, upset about that he felt that he'd done enough to deserve to stay on uh, Taxin got rid of him not not the shake but he, he thought that he, if he if he had got hold of the shake's money you know he could have really done something at City and he just missed it um, no, Taxini was saying how uh, he wanted to pick the team, and um, he said that uh, pick that nice uh, blonde goalkeeper, uh, Schmeichel, Schmeichel's son, um, because all the girls in Thailand like him, you know, <laughs> and and this kind of stuff, and that that was the level that Taxin had yeah, had yeah, sunk yeah, to. Yeah. But um, as it turned out, Man City and foreign owners did work out in the end. They, they did get the right foreign owners. But what, what's once one that absolutely went pear shaped? I think Portsmouth uh, was was uh, probably so many the, times. Yeah, the number of times. Yeah, I remember on the show um, a few years ago when they actually won their case. Uh, we were sort of celebrating. We were quite jubilant. Mm-hmm. We mentioned it on. Um, Thank Friday is football, and uh, it was a great moment for the people, for fans. For we, we were thinking of that Mr. Portsmouth, that fan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the guys who briefly owned Portsmouth, uh, Gadamak, Arkady Gadamak, who's a, a Russian, ostensibly a Russian, um, but he had four passports: uh, Angolan, which is uh, pretty unique. Uh, Canadian, Israeli, and Russian. Wow. And uh, he was the guy that was on Amnesty International's wanted list. And he he called himself a philanthropist. And he was wanted for gun running and diamond smuggling. And arms dealer. And arms, <laughs> arms dealing. <laughs> and a gem And he, he put up for uh, mayor of uh, Tel Aviv. And when you do that, apparently you've got to list your assets. And he listed one as owning a Premier League club. I mean, we, we, we laugh about this. Gaydamak came in and, and he had his fun with Portsmouth. But the city of Portsmouth 
the fans who went through all that, who saw it week by week, they knew that their club was literally being raped. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a toy, a plaything. Um, he was trying to get money from another owner um, that subsequently uh, bought it. Uh, lots of wheeling and dealing. Anyway, it's all in the book. If you like a good background story and a lot of intrigue, um, it's all there. I mean, it took a lot of research. I, I had to go back and use my annual leave. And people go to, well, they come to places like Malaysia yeah, for annual yeah, leave. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to Blackburn, Birmingham, Portsmouth, and places like that for my annual leave. But... It was worth it. I got some good stories, and I managed to put the book together. Now, Blackburn was a funny story, wasn't it? Uh, well, very well known to, um, I'm sure, to a lot of people here right now as well. Uh, the fact that Venkis from India, uh, chicken owners of, of what chicken factories, and 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 uh, they bought the club. Yeah, they hadn't got a clue, and they appointed uh, Chevy Singh. Uh, just based on his performances on uh, ESPN, TV. yeah. Uh, they did, I mean, uh, famously, uh, Madame Venki, uh, Mrs. Desai, a nice lady apparently, and um, a, a shrewd businesswoman. But she made a blunder here, and uh, she appointed uh, uh, Chevy as somebody they thought they, they knew and who knew something about football. And. Uh, it was a disaster. Uh, he he blundered in there, and um, he, Chevy is not not a shy person, is mm, he? Mm, like, mm. Let's let's put it like that. And uh, he started sort of throwing his weight around. And initially, the fans liked him uh, because they didn't like uh, Steve King, who yep. was his manager. Yep, yep. And and Chevy had famously uh, criticised Steve, King, rid of Steve on, King on TV. Yeah, yeah. So they were expecting that, but. Um, he didn't sack him, but it um, it just went absolutely pear-shaped and any attempts by fans and there was one local businessman who really tried to buy it and stop the rot and he even went to India for several days and met Madame Venki and thought got, he got through to her, but uh, they never returned his calls, never... Uh, uh, you know, never I mean, entertained him after that. So sad. Blackburn Rovers were Premier League champions. They had Alan Shearer, Steve Sutton up front, a fearsome English strike force, and mismanaged. Where are they lingering now in the third tier? Uh, well, they actually got promoted oh. this time. They're back in the championship. All right. Yeah. So one division away from big time again. Yeah. But th there are many clubs. I mean, Aston Villa, we, we heard recently, Aston Villa of uh, money mismanaged. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was a, a story. It was a good uh, story for most of the time. A genuine Aston Villa fan, Randy Lerner, who had been over, uh, went to uh, university in the UK, became a Villa fan, and made his pile, or inherited half of it from his dad, um, and then came back and was the absolute archetypal good owner. Yep. I mean, he even built a statue for the founder of the Football League in the ground. Um, he donated uh, funds to charity, built a college for a Cambridge College where he uh, went to school. He couldn't put a foot wrong and bought players for about three years, and then he was hit by the crash, the 2008 financial crash. And he had to uh, pull his horns in, 
and uh, denied the manager any money. Villa started sliding, and it all went pear shaped. It was a very sad story. It's a he was very a genuine. Sad, yeah, he was a genuinely good guy. Yeah, it was one of these. I mean, there, there, there are so many clubs like that, and not not just in England, of course. But but you you focus here mainly on 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 England. But I I noticed that you you didn't uh, mention the Malaysian owners. <laughs> well, you don't write about your boss, do you? <laughs> well, there was one in there. Tony Fernandez is in there. Yeah, I mean, yeah QPR. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Um, there were two owners at QPR, two sets of owners, if you like. First of all, it was um, Bernie Eccleston and Flavio Briatore of F1 fame, and that was absolute Two nutcases. Absolute <laughs> chaos. And uh, then Tony Fernandez took over and, um, you know, promised a, a, new, a new era and, and all that of openness, and the fans loved him, and they still do. I mean, it just shows what good PR will do. Yeah. Even now, even though there's been two relegations, one promotion, and a lot of disappointments, um, basically, uh, he, he's still got them on board. And it's because of his PR, which is brilliant. Well, it, it used to be, didn't it? Yeah, it helps owning a, a, an airline as well, I guess. Um, all right, so how long did it take to complete this Living the Dream and During the Nightmare book? Well, I suppose it was about three years altogether, counting the three visits back. But that um, was all done leisurely and all that. Yeah, it, I mean, if, if you had to write a book on, on a timeline, if I said to you, Bob, can you can you write one now, new one on on crazy crackpot foreign owners? Could you do it in like three months? Uh, well, without a trip over there. Uh, if I wasn't working, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, you know, with a full-time job, um, it is it is hard. Um, I mean, it's a labour of love. Yeah. Um, you know, writing writing about football is what uh, I love doing, and um, so it came into that category. It didn't actually seem like a chore. Uh, how how can people get hold of this book? Well, it's in the bookstores. Um, that's uh, that's a start. Um, it's in the major bookstores. It's uh, give the title again. It's Living the Dream. That's the main title. Mm-hmm. I think the All Enduring My Nightmare is like a subtitle. Living the Dream. Uh, it's uh, fifty ringgit. Um, and if they can't, if they don't have it uh, on the shelves, you can order it. And there's still a few copies left, but it's actually sold pretty well. I tell you what, if, if you're listening, um, you can also order it if you get if you message us via the football on BFM Facebook page. I will make sure Bob get that gets that message, and and we'll, we'll try and get you uh, an order if you want to order it that way. Fair enough. Uh, all right, that that's Bob's book and how he came about. We'll find out more from the Nottingham Forest fan next. This is Grandstand on BFM 89.9. Break from monotony. BFM 89.9. Sit back, talk sports, and play ball. This is Grandstand. And we are back. We're focusing on sports authors this week. Bob Holmes, author of Living the Dream, is in with us. He's also a regular guest on Thank Friday's Football. We, we heard about how Bob came into journalism, how uh, Living the Dream has become a labor of love. It's taken him what, roughly what three years 
on and off to complete the book. Now that you've got the taste of all right, it, all that, uh, it's it's quite glamorous. Um, you want to write another book, don't you? Yeah, I've started actually. Really? Um, yeah. What what's it about? Uh, Liverpool. Uh, I'm just doing one club this time because uh, the problem with uh, a, a book about several clubs is that some people think, well, you know, if they're not that interested, their club is not in it, or even if it's, it is and it's only one chapter, yeah, yeah. they're less inclined to buy it. Okay, but well, but but that's quite broad. Liverpool. Are you are you, are yeah. you talking Shankly you era? Know, are you similar theme ownership, but I am going back to the Shankly era. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as I said before. I knew all the anecdotes, or not all of them, but I mean al- enough to be able to do that story off the top of my head, w- without any any reference, you know, in uh, Africa. Um, and he was an absolute legend. Even though I, I was not a Liverpool supporter, I just knew those stories, and I love Shankly. He was one of the great, absolute top three per- football personalities of all time, in my opinion. And uh, you cannot write a book about Liverpool without going back to Shankly. And I think that right now, the current success and the way they're doing it, particularly Jurgen Klopp, I think they've gone back, as crazy as it sounds, having spent £75 million on a defender, they are actually going back a little bit towards the, the views and beliefs of Shankly. In terms of style of play, we, we've got to give a lot of credit here to, to FSG, the American owners. Yes, right. Yes. Well, FSG are, are looking like the, you know they'll be in the good guy category. Um, their predecessors were definitely in the bad guy category. This is what fascinates me. You've got the classic contrast there. So Hicks, all the, Hicks and Gillette, Hicks and <laughs> Gillette, nearly bankrupted the club, and FSG came in and rescued them but they got a very good deal I mean Liverpool now would have to be worth at least a billion yep. they only paid 300,000 for it wow um, and Liverpool will I think in a if they continue this resurgence uh, they'll be pretty close up to Man United levels um, and there's enough there in, in examining the Hicks and Gillette scenario and then the FSG takeover and Klopp and tracing it all back to Shankly's roots is absolutely incredible. The poverty that he came from and the values The he socialist had, background. Socialist background and you've got capitalist American owners. Totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, you keep saying, and Liverpool fans did, you know, what would Shanks make of this? Yeah. What would Shanks yeah, yeah. say about that? And all, that's what I'm trying to do in the book. There's all these references to I mean, Shankly. I, I, I know we're championing all these foreign billionaires buying, buying English um, clubs, British clubs. Don't you think the English game is, is losing its identity, though? Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, Nottingham Forest, your, your beloved forest, is, is owned by people who don't really care about Nottingham Forest, right? No, well, I think the present guy is a bit better than the predecessor. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> a bit like Liverpool, um, there, there is an improvement there. Um, yes, but that's the way of the world, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's old fogies like me. You know, you might think I would have given up on the game, and I do know people who have. I, I'm shocked. I mean. I had a cousin, I have a cousin. I can't even talk to him about football anymore. 
he's, he's disgusted with the antics, the money, and all that. He really do, turned off the game. Okay, do you find it's losing its identity with, with the introduction of video assistant referees? Oh, yeah. Fifth officials and all that nonsense? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, I was talking to Neil Warnock, who's over here recently, um, about this. He feels the same way. But still... The actual football is very exciting. I mean, the coverage, the the, uh, the TV coverage is obviously better than it's ever been. Yeah. And we've got all the other uh, advances of technology. So it is still very exciting. And although there's a lot you don't like about it, there's still a lot to love about it. It's still a, it's still a passion of mine. No question about it. So you, you still look forward to a brand new football season like like every football yeah, fan? Well, I'm looking forward to the next season more than I am the World Cup. And I'm, I'm uh, not, actually, so not alone. Yes. So am I, yeah. <laughs> well, what a note that although it is on now, the World Cup. We, we, we recorded it just before the World Cup kicked off. And yeah, England did well, didn't they, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Southgate for England. Um, well, okay, um, are there are there any other other areas which you, I, I I know you're a big cricket lover. You also like golf. And would you like to write books about that? Maybe? Yeah, I've done I've done that. Really? I've done, uh, yeah, I've done a book on uh, cricket. Great players. I've done previous football books. Uh, great uh, great players. Um, two books on great players. Uh, going back to the legends. The first book when I looked at the first book the other day, out of fifty five. Players that I'd interviewed, half of them had died. My goodness! I did it twenty years ago, 20, thirty years ago, thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean people like Stanley Matthews, oh, okay, uh, yeah, Tom yeah. Finney, yeah. George Best, sadly, and Bobby Moore. I'd like to mention. Yeah, I've got a Bobby Moore story. What would you do you. an up- updated greatest? Well, I can't bring them back to life. Can no, I? no, no. But I mean, I don't know how you do it now. Really, I mean, where does Neymar rank in the world's greatest player? Yeah, well, I think that's. I've got a lot of competition when it comes to that. But um, I just like to say Bobby Moore was an absolute gentleman. I'm sure people here know uh, know of Bobby Moore. Sadly, died in his early fifties. Yeah. Um, I mean. Obviously, he was there. The Synonymous moment. with with West Ham and, and England success. Yeah, yeah, and I, I interviewed him uh, for a cricket magazine, and what we were doing was getting famous people in other fields, uh, rock stars and and footballers and boxers or what have you, who actually love cricket and to give their cricket stories. So there was a girl there who wanted to interview Mick Jagger. Um, desperately, and uh, so, and she said, "You can have Bobby Moore." So I said, "Well, okay, I'm happy with that." And uh, you swap Mick Jagger for, for Bobby uh, Moore any any day, oh, any day. What? And uh, Bobby Moore was great. He, the deal was that um, we would we would pay for the lunch. You see, that's all. There was no fee involved, and he chose a decent restaurant in Piccadilly expensive place and I was picking up the tab and then I'd get it on my expenses so we met and uh, I told him uh, of course I told him that I'd been at the um, 1966 Mm, final mm, mm. and I think he'd heard that before about 500 times but I also told him that I was in 90 uh, there in 1970 when England lost to Germany heartbreaking uh, defeat in the quarter final after uh, winning 2-0 and uh, 
and that seemed to really impress it. And I said there were people crying on the bus on the way back and all that. You know. Anyway, we got on like a house on fire and uh, had two bottles of expensive wine. Nice. And I, did, I didn't mind because I thought, well, I'm going to get this back in expenses, you see. <laughs> I'm having lunch with Bobby Moore and drinking decent wine. I mean, what's wrong with that? If only had those handphones with the cameras in them <laughs> back in those days. Eh? Yeah. So uh, we had this great lunch. It lasted about three hours and got the story and all that. He was a pretty decent cricketer. Probably could have made it as a cricketer if he'd not been a footballer. He was that good. I, I hear Phil Neville was up to that standard yeah, as yeah. well, apparently. Anyhow, well, um, did the story, uh, sent it to him, it was published, I put in my expenses, he was happy with the story, and then the magazine folded. I never got my... It came, it came to £93, which was a lot of money in those days, and I, I didn't get paid for it, obviously, and I, and I lost the £93 as well. The bank, if you remember, there was a big banking crash, BCCI. Oh, yeah, Bank of bank Credit of and Commerce. Credit, Credit and Commerce yeah. International. And it, uh, this uh, magazine, it was edited by Imran Khan. And oh. I think he lost money as well. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so we never, you know, never saw the light of day. But, um, but you shared I've a di- couple I've of I've dined out on the story. Exactly. You, you, that, that, I mean, that's got to be worth it in itself, right? <laughs> Um, okay, well, I think that that just about does it, really. We're, we're going to get you back on, on our Friday shows when the new season starts. Um, I mean, we haven't seen any of the, the World Cup yet, but who do you think is going to win it, Bob? I go for Brazil. I think they've got um, strength in all departments. They focus this, this, yep. this time uh, around. I mean, they've got a superstar. They've got decent goalkeepers, too. Yeah. Edison can't even get in. Yeah. Um, they've, they've got strength everywhere. And I think they've got a good manager who took over a disaster. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And, and turned them around. Brilliant stuff. All right, thank you very much, Bob Holmes, for coming in. Thank you, it's a pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more Grandstand. Tune in next week for more Grandstand on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.